The following content may contain graphic depictions of actual crimes that took place. Listener discretion advised. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Love Thy Neighbor, Condos, Crimes, and Ramifications. Episode 3, Get Off My Lawn. I'm going to read you a quote from a man named Evan McKenzie. He said, Residents in common interest developments commonly fail to understand the difference between a regime based formally on rights, such as American civil governments, and the CID regime, which is based on restrictions. This often leads to people becoming angry at board meetings and claiming that their rights have been violated, rights they wrongly believe they have in a common interest development. Evan McKenzie was a professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He's written two books on the rise of homeowners associations in our country. He's not always the most popular person in the world of common interest developments, but I mention this quote here because his take on rights versus restrictions cuts to the heart of our story this week. As Americans, we enjoy more rights than almost any other country. But as most folks in this industry know, Every association has its own set of rules and restrictions, and every resident is expected to abide by them. Many are more than happy to do so. It's the rules and formality that attracted them to buy into a community association in the first place. They don't want their neighbor to be able to paint his house blue. It's important that buyers understand what they're getting into. Put simply, some people just aren't well-suited for living in a common interest development. And while a great majority of HOA-related altercations don't end in tragedy, every so often, a combination of circumstance and personality will create that perfect storm. Case in point, the Ventana Lakes Association in Sun City, Arizona. Ventana Lakes is a 55 and over retirement community with 1,700 units and 30 acres of winding lakes. This community has everything, from fishing and boating and golfing to a library, rec room, fitness center, sauna, and game room. It's got four pools, two spas, and a whole host of clubs to partake in. Bocce ball, volleyball, horseshoes, bingo, karaoke, blah blah, you name it, this place has it. Sounds like a pretty perfect place to retire. Building started in 1986 and wasn't completed until 2003. Richard Glassell and his wife Susan bought their condo unit for just over $85,000 in December of 1994. By all accounts, Susan was pleasant, courteous, and a good neighbor. It baffled the community, though, that she could have been married to a man like Richard. People would go out of their way to avoid him. They'd literally turn and go into their homes when he'd walk down the street. But why? What made Richard such a bad guy? Problems began almost as soon as the Glassels moved into the neighborhood. According to court documents, the first dispute arose over car fumes. You see, there was a bank of mailboxes just outside of Richard's unit. When cars ran idle, while residents retrieved their mail, fumes from the cars would come in through his windows. One resident, Linda Kolb, said she saw Richard out on his front yard one day taking pictures of people as they picked up their mail. An intimidation move, perhaps, or merely building research to file a complaint. 
But Richard didn't do that. He took a more direct action. He parked his car in front of the mailboxes, effectively blocking residents from retrieving their mail. Requests to move his car were ignored. The complaints piled up and eventually the board had his car towed, which did not go over well with Richard. Another incident involved an awning Richard wanted to have built on his home. The HOA denied the request because the vendor was not on the HOA's approved list. Then something happened that didn't involve Richard directly, but it did fan the flames nonetheless. It seems another property owner had requested a variance but was denied. Later that owner was elected to the board of directors, and lo and behold, the variance was suddenly granted. Richard saw this as nothing other than blatant corruption from a board that denied him at every turn. If this is starting to sound familiar, a story of a man getting pushed to his breaking point, you're catching on. And if you remember Mr. Chung Kim from our first episode, you'll remember there were signs that people either failed to notice or simply ignored. The same was true with Richard Glassell. Dottie Coleman, a resident who lived around the corner from him, once recalled a conversation she'd had with him about neighbors' pets urinating on his lawn. She quoted him as saying, I'm going to kill those people. Now, if you don't like the way a government is running things, be it local, state, or national, one option is to run for office yourself and change things from within. That's how it works. That option was certainly available to Richard, but it was one he chose to ignore. According to court documents, the crux of the conflict was over landscaping. Put simply, Richard wanted to landscape his own property. Now, during trial, that's right, trial, Richard maintained that he was given permission by the board to perform his own landscaping. The manager at the time, Elaine Petrosino, told a different story. She said he was never given permission to do his own landscaping and that every time the workers showed up on his lawn, he would yell and threaten them, to the point that they would have to wait until he wasn't home to trim his hedges. In 1998, four years after the Glassels had moved in, there was a changing of the guard. A new management company took over at Ventana Lakes, and this new regime certainly wasn't going to let Richard do his own landscaping. Richard, however, wasn't backing down either. He continued to stop the landscapers from doing any work on his property and continued to make more threats. This time, the association took him to court, and they won, resulting in a superior court order preventing Richard from obstructing the landscapers. Predictably, when the process server showed up to serve Richard the papers, he ran them off with hostile words, and according to an association attorney, he also tried running them over with his car. Later, during trial, HOA attorney Penny Kepke, who stood at 5 foot 5 and 120 pounds, asked Richard if she had shown up to serve him papers, would he have tried running her over as well? His reply, according to Kepke, was, I certainly would. The Glassels were ordered to pay just over $1,000 in attorney's fees, money they didn't have. Attempts to garnish their bank account found a balance of just $39. In addition, the association placed a lien on their home in the amount of $507 for maintenance assessments. Soon after, their house was foreclosed on. They moved to Canyon Country, California to live with Susan's daughter from a previous marriage. 
Fontana Lakes had finally rid themselves of Richard Glassell. That should have been the end of it. What nobody knew is that in May and June of 1999, one month before the ruling that ultimately led to the foreclosure, Richard Glassell bought two handguns, a 9mm and a 22. He bought another 9mm handgun in the June following the ruling. All three handguns were purchased legally at different stores in Arizona. Richard also acquired an AR-15 rifle, but even court documents didn't show how or where he purchased it. Apparently, Richard was preparing for war. But then, nothing. No word from Richard Glassell for over five months. One can only assume that people forgot about the whole affair and moved on with their lives. They probably assumed that Richard had done the same. Now, to buy a handgun in California, there's a 10-day waiting period, also known as a cooling-off period. It's supposed to prevent people in a heated moment from buying a gun and committing a crime. 10 days to come to your senses, realize what you're going to do, and think better of it. Richard bought his guns in Arizona, where there is no cooling-off period. He did so while he was losing his home. And yet, he still didn't take action for five months. Then, on April 4th of 2000, Richard drove to Arizona and rented a storage locker. Two weeks later, April 18th, his stepdaughter took him to LAX airport, where he boarded a flight bound for Phoenix. He arrived at 10.35 a.m. That afternoon, he closed out his storage locker, emptying its contents, and checked into a La Quinta Inn. The next day was April 19th, 2000. A board meeting was scheduled that day in the Ventana Lakes Yacht Club. Among the people in attendance were Esther LaPlante and Nyla Lynn. Esther was a board member with Nyla's husband, Dwayne. Nyla sat in the audience while Dwayne and Esther sat with the rest of the board members. Outside, Richard Glassell made two passes around the yacht club in his rental truck before parking. Armed with a 22 pistol, two 9mm in shoulder holsters, and an AR-15 assault rifle, and a combined 384 rounds of ammunition, Richard entered the yacht club. The first to encounter him were Lyle and Beverly Bade, who were on their way out. Richard told them they weren't going anywhere. When they said they were headed to a doctor's appointment, Richard grabbed Lyle by the shoulder and ordered them to go sit back down. It's at this point that Richard declared some version of, I'm going to kill all of you. He opened fire with a 22 pistol, shooting a total of 10 rounds. When the pistol was empty, he switched to the AR-15 assault rifle. While most of the crowd panicked, a few kept their cool and acted quickly. Lyle Bade, the man who would be very late for his doctor's appointment, tackled Richard to the floor. In the struggle, Richard was able to fire off one round, hitting a man in the foot. Three more men came over and helped subdue Richard until authorities arrived. The man shot in the foot, Gilbert McCurdy, ended up losing a toe. 
Investigators determined that the AR-15 jammed after one round due to a shell casing caught in the injection port. Even with Lyle Bade's heroic efforts, a healthy dose of luck or fate also played a part in preventing Richard from claiming more victims. In total, four people were shot by Richard's initial burst of 22 caliber gunfire. Charles Yankowski, 69, was struck in the leg, while Edward Edinger, also 69, was struck in the abdomen. Both men survived. But two other poor souls did not. Board member Esther LaPlante, 58, took two bullets to the arm and head. Nyla Lynn, 69, was shot in the back. Both women died at the scene. Someone asked Richard why he'd done it. His response was, I did it to get even, you effing sons of bitches. A search of Richard's truck outside found another 369 rounds of ammunition. Richard was indicted with two counts of first-degree murder and 30 counts of attempted first-degree murder. An interview conducted with Richard's wife and stepdaughter revealed both women believed he had traveled to Phoenix to buy a used car. Richard pled not guilty to all charges. The Maricopa Attorney's Office gave notice that if Richard was convicted, it would seek the death penalty. Trial was set to begin on September 23, 2002. However, in June, three months before trial, something interesting happened. The United States Supreme Court ruled on another case, Ring v. Arizona, which held that capital defendants are entitled to a jury determination of any fact on which the legislature conditions an increase in their maximum punishment. Essentially, this means that when it came to sentencing, a jury, not a judge, could decide whether or not the defendant would receive the death penalty. That decision would not be a recommendation for the judge, it would be final. Richard Glassell's case would be the first capital case in Arizona to be tried with these new parameters. Given this twist, Richard's attorney asked for a continuance on the grounds that he wouldn't have time to prepare. The continuance was granted, moving trial to November 18th. Richard's competence to stand trial was also called into question. He spoke to three different psychiatrists and forensic psychologists. The first one, Dr. Jack Potts, concluded that while Richard had a factual understanding of the proceedings, he lacked a rational understanding and recommended he be sent to the state hospital for further treatment and diagnosis. The second, Dr. Michael Bayless, concluded that while Richard may have been suffering from paranoid personality disorder and perhaps a depressive disorder, he understood the charges against him and was capable of assisting his own attorney in his defense. With a split decision, a third doctor, Martin Castle, was called in. His conclusion? A coin toss. He agreed with the paranoid personality disorder and added narcissism to his diagnosis, but ultimately couldn't decide. The judge, the Honorable Peter Reinstein, based on these reports as well as his own interactions with Richard from over 60 different hearing proceedings, deemed him competent to stand trial. Then, just 11 days before the trial began, Dwayne Lynn, widower of the deceased Nyla Lynn, went to the judge and asked him not to consider the death penalty. A reporter later said she'd spoken to the Lynn family and learned that they were in favor of capital punishment. 
Could Duane have been in favor of the death penalty in principle, but not want it applied in the case of his slain wife? Regardless, the judge told Duane that he had no say in the matter. Due to the Supreme Court ruling, that power now rested entirely with the jury. Trial finally began on December 4th and lasted five days. The jury deliberated for just under two days before returning a verdict of guilty on all charges. They gave him not one, but two death sentences. Richard was reported to have smiled when he heard the sentence. Dwayne Lynn slumped in his seat and wept. Angela LaPlante, a relative of Esther's, said of Richard, I just think he's a very evil, sad man, and I hope God has mercy on his soul. As for the Lynn family, while they were relieved to be done with the whole ordeal, a guilty verdict didn't balance the scales for them. Kathy Morgan, daughter of the slain Nyla Lynn, said this, There's really no victory either way. It's not going to bring back Esther LaPlante or my mom. Justice doesn't really heal. Grace does. On January 16th, 2013, Nine years later, Richard Glassell died from natural causes at St. Luke's Hospital in Tempe, Arizona. Some of the research for this story came from an article that tried to paint the association as partially responsible for what happened. That writer saw Richard and Susan as victims of a controlling microgovernment that bullied them out of their home, causing PTSD. At one point, the writer asked the question, if they hadn't been foreclosed on, might the shooting have been avoided? Again, living in a common interest development, abiding by a stated set of rules and restrictions isn't for everyone, and that's okay. But the choices we make, we make them, nobody else. That's not to say we shouldn't have compassion or sympathy for people in tough situations, and living in a CID isn't always smooth sailing. But, and this should go without saying, the extreme and reprehensible actions of Richard Glassell were never justified. Were there signs that the board should have seen? Were there accommodations that could have been made to try to de-escalate the situation? Perhaps. It's also possible that nothing anyone could have said or did could have swayed someone like Richard from making his decisions. Perhaps he was always looking for a fight. A board of directors has a fiduciary duty. They shouldn't make decisions out of fear of reprisal by a unit owner. It's likely that any experts they consulted agreed with the path that they took. But for all of us that serve on boards of directors for our own communities, this story should serve as a wake-up call. Humans are very protective of their homes. Humans are also unpredictable. And when going about our duties and operating the business of the association, whenever possible, we should always try to remember that there's a human being that has to live with the consequences of our decisions. Until next time, stay safe, folks. <laughs>